just invite you guys to head on out to Children's Church. And if the rest of us could go ahead and take our Bibles and go to the book of Luke. Again, I want to just add my word of welcome to those of you who are visiting today. Thanks so much for being with us here at Cloverleaf Baptist. I'm so honored that you would come out and be with us uh, for a Sunday morning to worship. We're so honored that you would be here, that you would uh, sing with us, that you would pray with us and worship with us. And so I want to just thank each one of y'all for being here today. And uh, it's our desire that you would be strengthened and helped uh, from God's word. Um, I also want to add my word of welcome that you would stick around uh, after the morning service for our fourth Sunday fellowship. And, uh, man, we get to honor our graduates. What a special time to be able to do that. And uh, we ask all of you to come. What we'll do, we'll have our meal. And then once the meal is kind of winding down, we're going to go into a special program. So don't just eat fried chicken and then just cut out of here, but hang around. We will uh, we'll take some time to honor each of our graduates individually. We've got a gift for them. We want to just uh, celebrate with them. Um, also, at the end of the morning service, before we go over, we're going to celebrate communion. That is such a special time. It's like the family meal for those who are believers in Jesus. And what I want to encourage you to do, even as the message is being preached, is examine your heart. This is not for everyone. Just because you're in church today doesn't mean that you should uh, partake of communion. It is, it is open to those who have been born again. There's a time in your life you put your faith and trust in Jesus. You know you belong to him. You know that you're part of his family. And you have been baptized as a believer by immersion. Uh, you would be qualified to partake of the table, uh, provided, of course, that you're walking in obedience uh, to Jesus Christ. And that's why I say, as the message is being preached today, be thinking about your own heart. We're going to have a time at the end of the message for you to pause and to think about the condition of your soul and to talk to God and to confess known sins so you can come to the table in a meaningful way. There's no magic that's going to be conveyed by partaking of the elements. It's not like Jesus is somehow mystically in the, the cup of juice. It is a memorial, it is a reminder, but it is a serious thing. Uh, So that'll be at the end of the message. I wanted to make note of that. All right, your Bibles are open to uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. One other thing before I get into this, thank you to each of you who came out yesterday to the apologetic seminar. It was awesome. And uh, those of you who weren't here, you missed out. Uh, Come to the next one we have. Really, really helpful, but thanks for coming out on a Saturday. It was a great time together yesterday. All right, Luke, chapter 7. You know, there are some people that you would just not peg as a likely convert uh, to Christianity. You're not looking at, oh, yep, there's a potential Sunday school teacher with that individual. One such individual, her name was Rosaria Butterfield, and she was a lesbian leftist Marxist professor of English in a university. Not exactly someone that you would look at and be like, oh, Rosaria Butterfield, there is a likely person to be a convert to Christianity. And yet today, she is a pastor's wife, a born-again Christian. She wrote a book called Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert Came to Faith in Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis is another person that I think about as an unlikely convert. He was an atheist. He was a professor at Oxford University. He uh, didn't believe in God because of the evil in the universe. But God, through a series of events, using friends in his life and circumstances, brought him to a place of faith. And C.S. Lewis said the night that he came to recognize God as God, he was the most unlikely, despondent convert in all of England. Uh, Amazing statement from C.S. Lewis. In our text today, we're going to encounter another unlikely convert, not someone that we would look at and be like, oh yeah, there's a a, a likely disciple of Jesus Christ. The guy we're going to meet is uh, not even Jewish. Back in this time, the Jews thought that they were kind of in in the kingdom of God, and the Gentiles, the non-Jews, were on the outs. This man is a a Gentile. He doesn't know the the word of God. He doesn't have access to the the worship and to the sacrifices. In fact, he's one of the hated occupiers. He is complicit with the the Roman occupation. And if you know anything about the Roman Empire, they were a very brutal empire who ruled with an iron fist. He was party to the oppressive power structures of the day. And then one day, his beloved servant fell ill. The servant who he loved was on Death's doorsteps. And as often the case, this crisis led him to Christ. By the way, maybe you're here today and there's a crisis going on in your life. There's some kind of heartache, some kind of tragedy, some kind of crisis of faith where you're just like, I don't know. You're here today. Let that crisis take you by the hand and bring you to Jesus. Though unworthy, though this guy was not a likely convert, he found the compassion and the mercy of Jesus Christ. 
Now, Luke chapter 7, I want to give you an overview of this chapter because we're preaching through the gospel of Luke, and I don't want to just lift this paragraph they're going to look at out in isolation and deal with it. At the heart of this chapter, in verse 19, is sort of the big question this chapter is asking and answering. Look at Luke 7, verse 19. John the Baptist uh, called on them two of his disciples and sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he who should come, or look we for another? So here's John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. And he's in prison for being a faithful preacher of truth. And he's now beginning to question, is Jesus really the Messiah? Is he really the promised one? Is he really who the prophet said that he was? Because are you the coming one or do we look for another? He's having a crisis in his faith. He's wondering in the dark, in the, in the prison cell, in this time of suffering, is Jesus really who he said he is? And so they come. The messengers come to Jesus, and look at verse 21. In that same hour, he, that is Jesus, cured many of their sicknesses and plagues and of evil spirits, and many that were blind, he gave sight. In verse 22, Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way and tell John what things you have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, and lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and to the poor the gospel is preached. So Jesus is saying, okay, here is the evidence to answer. Here is the answer to John's question. Is Jesus really the Messiah? And Jesus says, here's the proof. Look at my ministry of compassion. Look at my power displayed to those who need it the most. This chapter is a chapter that is all about how the compassion of Jesus proves that he's the Messiah. Jesus wasn't just a nice guy who happened to be the Messiah. But he is the Messiah. And as the Messiah, the proof that he is who he said he is is in the fact that he showed compassion to those who needed it the most. So we're going to look at verses 1 to 10 today. But in verses 11 to 17, we see Jesus showing compassion to a widow who has lost her son. So he shows compassion to Gentile centurions, and in the passage we'll look at, to a, to, to a bereaved widow, to a discouraged prophet. And then the chapter ends with Jesus showing compassion and mercy and forgiveness to a repentant prostitute. Here's Luke's point. No matter someone's need, no matter how dark the despair, no matter how deep the depravity, Jesus' compassion can reach them. His compassion proves that he's the Messiah. You see, the compassion of Jesus meets you and me in our deepest needs. And not only that, it not only reaches down to our deepest needs, but it reaches across society's widest chasms with grace. From Jew to Gentile. From Jesus to a widow. From someone who is in prison to someone who is out of prison. From Jesus to a repentant prostitute. His grace reaches across. So here's the question. To whom does he extend that saving compassion? To whom does he extend that grace and that mercy? You say, man, that that sounds awesome. I want that. Who does he show it to? What what are sort of the the conditions, the requirements? Well, in our text here in in Luke 7, verses 1 to 10, we're going to see the centurion. We don't get his name. We're not told who he is. We don't know anything else about him except that he received the compassion, the grace, the help, the mercy of Jesus, and he stands as a model of what is required. Verse 9 gives us the heart of this passage. Jesus heard these things. He marveled at him and turned him about and said to the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. Notice the key. It is faith. So I want to walk through this passage, look at four scenes here in this text, four scenes that kind of unfold this and bring us to that climax. Notice first off the centurion's request, beginning in verse 1. Now, when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. So Jesus has finished the sermon on the plain. He's completed those words that God gave him. We've looked for several weeks at that amazing sermon. So he finishes it in the audience of the people. He enters into Capernaum. So Capernaum is a village on the Sea of Galilee, about 700 feet below sea level. Uh, By the way, you can still go there today. This is a real place. History can verify. Like, you can go back and look at the synagogue that's referenced in this text. A real person in a real place. And a certain centurion servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he, the centurion, heard about Jesus, he sent unto him the Jewish elders beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. So the centurion is going to make this request it's a, it's a pretty desperate situation coming right on the heels of this, of this sermon that Jesus preaches. Capernaum is something of Jesus' headquarters for his Galilean ministry. It's not his hometown. He's from Nazareth. But he set up shop, so to speak, in Capernaum. It's on an important crossroads. 
on the east-west roadway on the border of the Tetrarchy of of, uh, Philip and the Tetrarchy of Herod. So an important location. He's not just randomly picking this place. It would have had a contingency of soldiers. There were tax collectors there. We know about Matthew, Levi, who comes to follow Jesus. We looked at him in past weeks. Now it says there's a servant of a a certain centurion in verse 2, a certain centurion's servant. Uh, The word for servant is doulos. This is a bondservant or a slave. All right, that's one of the realities of the ancient world. A lot of oppression, a lot of people being taken advantage of. This is just one of the realities of what was going on there. Centurion, of course, is a military position. Uh, you see the word cent. Cent is one one-hundredth of a dollar. Centurion was someone who, who led a contingency of soldiers around 100. Sometimes it was 80, sometimes a little bit more. Uh, for those of you who've served in the military, this will be about the equivalent of the rank of captain. So kind of right in the middle of the pack. He's not the general, but he's also not the private. He's sort of 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 moderate level of importance. Now, he's likely not in the Roman army because the Roman troops did not occupy Galilee until 44 AD, about 15 years later. But we know Herod had had an army that he sort of modeled on the Roman army, and he would bring all these mercenaries from the outside to be part of his army. Now, here's the thing you need to know about Herod. Herod's a really bad dude. He's the one, in fact, who takes John the Baptist and arrests him for criticizing his so-called marriage. He's going to behead John the Baptist. He is a brutal, petty uh, dictator. Later on in Luke's gospel, Jesus will have an encounter with him, and he will join Pilate, and he will join, uh, he will join the other rulers, the r- religious rulers, in condemning Jesus to death. He is a very, very evil, wicked man, and this person ought to be viewed as a threat to Jesus, right? He doesn't, Herod is afraid of potential revolutionaries like John and like Jesus who are creating a following and could pull people away from him. So here's this centurion. He's probably a Roman who went to work for Herod. But there's some striking features about him. He, he's concerned. Notice verse 2. He had a servant who was dear to him. This guy's not like every other Roman centurion who's just a brutal, heartless individual. But this man has a heart. He is concerned about the condition of his servant. Most people would treat their servant as just a piece of property. and Oh, well, who cares? I'll go get another one. This man is concerned about his servant. The word translated dear and timos means pertaining to be highly regarded because of status or personal quality. He's honored. He's respected. It's more than just, well, he was a really useful, valuable servant, but it is that he had a concern and had compassion for for him. Um, In verse number 7, uh, notice verse 7, Wherefore, neither sought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but I say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. He actually uses a different word for servant there, which is the word that we would translate boy. My boy. He regarded this servant almost as a son. That, that, that shows something about this man's heart. He valued him. The servant is, is young. He's just a child, but he is precious to the centurion. A centurion concerned with the plight of his lowest servants. By the way, that's something Luke does. Luke will highlight throughout his gospel the plight of the lowest of the low in society, the people that everyone else would walk by and ignore. In the next, the next paragraph we'll look at next week, uh, Jesus will raise from the dead the only son of a widow. By the way, no one else tells us that story. Luke is going to highlight, here's someone, a widow, who would be overlooked, would be ignored, would be desperately in need in society, loses her only son, and Jesus cares You need to know this this morning, Jesus cares, right? He knows the pain, the suffering, the anguish, the heartache that you go through. He he sees it. You're not just a face in a crowd, not just a number in a system. But he knows you. He knows your name. He knows your need. Now, we look at the text. Look at verse 2. Okay, there's a certain centurion servant who was dear to him, and it says he was sick. Literally in the Greek, was having it badly. It's sort of idiomatic Greek. For this guy was in a really bad state, and he was ready to die. He had come to the end, to lutao, to come to an end to die. He is at the point of death. Matthew gives us the same account, and he tells us that he was paralyzed. Uh, what a terrifying condition to be in, to be paralyzed and to be at death's door, to be in tremendous agony. Uh, We know about Capernaum, 700 feet below sea level. Uh, There's a lot of heat. There's a lot of malaria. There's a lot of disease. And there's no treatment, right? The doctors can't do much for you back in that time. This would have been absolutely terrifying. In other words, without divine intervention, the boy is going to die. This is a desperate condition where the centurion, with all of his power, with all of his authority, can do nothing. Maybe that's where you are this morning. You're like, man, I'm in this helpless condition, the the circumstances of life, and more seriously, the condition of my soul. It's helpless, it's desperate. Now notice what he does. 
He no longer can lean on his own resources. So verse 3, he calls out to Jesus when he heard about Jesus. Now, he's probably heard about Jesus before. Uh, Capernaum is not a big town. It's just a few hundred people, a few thousand people maybe. Jesus has already had a ministry, so he's heard about what Jesus has been able to do. I think what this means is he's heard that Jesus has come back into town. He's been out preaching. He's come back into town, and there's a light bulb moment where it's like, this Jewish rabbi who has been healing and preaching, maybe he could deliver my servant. He heard about Jesus. So Jesus comes back into the small town of Capernaum. Some of you grew up in a small town, right? And if you know, somebody new moves into town, everybody knows about it. Hey, did you see someone moved into the new house over there? That's what Capernaum is like. Word spreads, spreads quickly and gets to the centurion. He'd heard that Jesus of Nazareth was in town. And he makes a step of faith. He believes that Jesus can help and that he is his only hope. So what does he do? He sent unto Jesus the Jewish elders, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. Verse 7 tells us why he did it. He says, neither sought, thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. He's like, he's thinking, Jesus is so important an individual. I'm just a lowly centurion. He's a Jew. I'm a Gentile. I'm not even going to go to him myself. I'm going to send messengers in my place. So he gets the Jewish elders, the leaders of the synagogue, the community leaders, and says, go in my place. By the way, Matthew's gospel leaves that out. Matthew's gospel says that the man came to Jesus. Some people are like, man, there's a contradiction. Understand this in Jewish thought. To send, some, send a messenger is as good as going yourself. So if a messenger goes and takes word, it's accurate to say, I told you something, right? So if I, if I send a message to someone and it's relayed correctly, say, pastor said such and such. Well, if I said that, that is me saying it through that other individual. So he sends these messengers, these Jewish elders, these leaders... Uh, from the synagogue to Jesus. There's tremendous humility in this. This is important. Luke tells us this. Matthew doesn't because Luke is trying to say, look at the humility of the centurion. Yeah, he's an important man in the community. He has power. He has soldiers. He's got a sword. But he's humble as he approaches Jesus. They're beseeching Jesus. They're begging Jesus. They're entreating. They're asking. This is not a, Jesus, you better come because I'm important. But this is Jesus I'm just asking because this is in your hands. This is not something that I can demand. It says that you would come and heal. That word heal means to deliver through. That's the word so-and-so to save and the word through put together. To rescue or deliver from the hazard of danger. He's in the middle of danger. He's in a desperate condition. Jesus, could you come and rescue him? Deliver him safely through. You notice what's absent from the centurion? There is no attitude of entitlement. We live in an entitlement Age, And I don't mean like the government programs called entitlements, but I mean the idea where people feel like I'm sort of owed stuff. Life sort of owes me a good shake. I deserve this and I deserve that. And everybody is entitled to fill in the blank. The centurion does not have that idea. What's dangerous is when we come to God with that notion of, God, I don't deserve what I'm going through. I deserve better than what I'm going through right now. I deserve a good life. I deserve a good marriage. I deserve good health. The reality is, beloved, we don't. God owes us nothing. He's the creator. We're the creatures. And sometimes God does allow things to come into our lives that are hard and painful. The centurion does not come and say, Jesus, you you owe it to me to come and heal my servant because after all, I'm really important. No, he asks humbly. Giving us a wonderful insight into his faith. It's this humble seeking. Recognizing the need. Do you see your need this morning? I don't mean your need financially or physically. I mean the need of your soul. It doesn't matter if you've got money in the bank. It doesn't matter if your health is top-notch. If your soul is not right with God, your money's not going to do anything for you on Judgment Day. And no matter how many reps you can do on the bench press, one day you will die. That's the deepest, most serious need any one of us is going to deal with. Will you turn to Jesus with the need of your soul, the condition of your heart, your sin, and find forgiveness? Now, notice, secondly, the next scene. See his request, but notice his reputation. This is really incredible. One thing you you should know about the ancient world is Jewish elders and Roman centurions, Gentile centurions, don't hang out together. Right? Like, they, they hate the Romans. They're the occupiers. The Romans distrust the Jews. These elders would be like, hey, we're not even going to hang out with this guy because we'll be unclean. We can't hang out with riffraff like Gentile centurions. But this man has such an amazing reputation, these people eagerly do it. Look at verse 4. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, immediately, with, 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 with haste, with diligence, with earnestness, saying, 
that he was worthy for whom he should do this, for he loveth our nation, and he has built us a synagogue. So the Jewish elders aren't coming being like, okay, fine, we have to come and bring this message. But this centurion has such a reputation in the community, the Jewish elders eagerly bring the message to Jesus. That's quite amazing, the reputation that he has before men. The sense of the tense sequence in verse 4, it's almost like as soon as they come to Jesus, they immediately start talking, and they don't even let Jesus get a word in edgewise. They're like, okay, we're bringing the message, and they just immediately start talking, keep going. That word translated instantly is with diligence. They, they're doing this with earnestness. This is not just a passionless, all right, we delivered the message, check off the box, but they really want to see Jesus do something here. So notice the centurion's reputation before, before men. They make a statement in verse 4 saying that Jesus should come and heal his servant, uh, uh, verse 4, sorry, that he was worthy for whom he should do this. Saying, Jesus, this centurion deserves your help. He's, he's worthy. He is deserving. That word for worthy is the idea, it's a picture of a scale. Right? There, there, there are things that he's done on the good side of the scale that sort of make it, sort of balance out the scales of goodness. He, he, he deserves something from you. Now, how do, they, how do they quantify that? Verse 5, for he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. They're saying, here's how we know he's deserving. He loves the Jewish people. That was an unusual thing in the ancient world. Most people did not like the Jewish people. By the way, anti-Semitism has continued through history. I think we've seen it in recent weeks. Where people are like, it's okay for any nation in the world to defend themselves, except Israel. Like, that's anti-Semitism, right? It's still a thing. People have this, we, we don't like, that was common in the ancient world. So here's a centurion, he loves the Jewish people. That's an unusual thing, right? For an occupying army to have love for the occupied people. He loves the Jewish people. So he's not Jewish himself, and I don't think he's even a convert to Judaism. I believe what we have is there, someone who is called a God-fearer in the Bible. So there's the Jewish people. There are proselytes who are Gentiles who convert to Judaism. And then there are people who are called God-fearers who come to the conclusion that the God of Israel is the true God and the law of Israel is good. And they believe in the one true God, though they haven't converted to Judaism. I think that this man perhaps recognized the moral bankruptcy of Roman religion. Like Roman religion, uh, Greek religion, it's a mess, morally bankrupt. You've got gods who are doing all kinds of immoral, evil things. You're like, we're supposed to worship them, really? Perhaps he recognized the confusion of trying to worship multiple gods and was attracted. His heart was longing for more, seeing something in the Jewish religion of there's a one true God who created everything, who's given this beautiful, ethical, moral law to his people. I think that's where this guy was at. Now, he's not getting there by his own works. It's not like this centurion somehow had a spark of goodness in him. There's no spark of goodness in anyone. Rather, the Spirit of God was stirring in his heart, was creating this emptiness that brings him to love the Jewish people. I love their God, their religion. So much so, it says, he has built for us a synagogue. Now, here's the thing. Roman, the, 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 the Roman rulers of the day were not afraid to sort of invest in local religion as a way to keep peace. Uh, the, the historian Gibbon says that to the, to the Roman people, all the religions were equally valid, to the philosophers all equally false, and to the rulers all equally useful. Okay, that was the mentality of the day. They viewed religion as just a useful tool for political purposes. Hmm, that sounds familiar. Uh, and is that what's going on? No, there's something more going on. The way that this is worded in the Greek, it's not that, well, yeah, he just built a synagogue. It's he himself. There, there's an intensive word here. He's the one who took charge of it. He perhaps is the big benefactor. Hey, putting up a synagogue, think about building a church like this. For one person to pay for the whole thing, that would be a massive act of generosity. Imagine we're like occupied by the Russian army, and there's a Russian captain around who's like, I'm going to pay to build, your guys a church, build a church for you guys. That would be astounding. This is sacrificial generosity from this man. A lot of people's conversion, by the way, is kind of like this man. He doesn't come to faith in Jesus in sort of one day, but he comes to recognize, yeah, there's one true God, and he believes in him. And when Jesus comes to him, he believes in Jesus. Some people's conversion is like a, an explosion where it's just like, man, it happened. I once was lost. I'm now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see, and it happened in an instant. Other people's, it's sort of more like the sun rising. Yeah, it was night at one time. Nobody is born saved. But you come to recognize and accept God's truth and put your trust in it, until one day, it's just the logical next step is to put your faith in Jesus Christ. I think that's where this man was at. There is a point where he comes to trust in Jesus. He's not saved at this point. 
but God is working in his heart. Amazing reputation before men. But what about his reputation before God? Right? You might have a good reputation in the community. You're like, man, I, I'm, I'm regarded as a good member of the city of Mobile. I'm, I'm a good citizen. I, I vote. I put my trash out. I'm a, I pay my HOA dues. I, I even give to charitable organizations. I donate my time. Here I am at church. Hey, those are all good things in a, in a public morality kind of way. But guess what? God is not concerned merely with public morality. He is concerned with internal righteousness. Right, we can do all of those things with a motive of trying to earn God's favor. You know, if trying to earn God's favor is actually insulting to the one true God. It is actually idolatry. It is trying to establish your own religion. When you say, I'm going to earn my way to God by being a good person, it is abomination to God to have that mentality. You see, while the centurion possessed outward virtue, he was devoid of inward righteousness, and so are you and me. And even the external virtue he had was the gift of God. Contrary to the elders' estimations, the centurion did not deserve Jesus' help. Like, ah, Jesus, he deserves your help. No, he doesn't. By the way, that reveals more about their hearts than his. The the Jewish people of of Jesus' day, Paul would say in Romans 10, that they have a zeal, but not according to knowledge. He says, for knowing about God's righteousness, they seek to establish their own. And doing that, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. There's either God's righteousness, which we need to be justified, or I can try and do it on my own. And they have that mentality. It comes out in the fact they're like, oh, Jesus, he deserves your help. You see, as good as it is to have public morality, it is wrong. It is falling short of God's glory to believe those things can commend you to God. It's like someone who is, who is running. Uh, Augustine, he compares works righteousness to a runner. So you're running, and you're, you're running in the Mobile Marathon, and you're supposed to turn left at Spring Hill Avenue, and instead you keep going straight. It does not matter how hard you run, you're not on the path. In fact, the harder you run, the further off you get. There's many people in our world today who are like that, running hard with great zeal for works and for righteousness and for morality, but they're not in the path of doing it God's way by faith. They're trying to do it in their own path of doing it by works. So Augustine said it this way, better to limp on the path than to run outside it. Far better to have one work that is based on faith, trusting in Jesus and him alone, than to have a million works that are trusting and resting on myself, trying to earn God's favor. You see, there is no true righteousness with God apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ. Romans makes this so clear. If you don't believe me, sit down today, read the book of Romans. Read the book of Romans. Titus 3 verse 5 says, It's not by works of righteousness which we have done. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us this, By grace you're saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works. It's not faith and works. It's faith and alone in Christ alone. Hebrews 11:6 says without faith it is impossible to please God. Not just kind of hard, not just easier to please God with faith, it is impossible to please God. If the good works we do are not generated by faith in Jesus Christ, they do not and they cannot please God. So we consider the centurion's reputation, man his reputation before the world, before men. He had a good reputation in the community, evidence that God's working in his heart, bringing him to faith in the one true God. But before God, it doesn't matter how many synagogues you build, how, many, how much money you give to churches, how much time you devote to, uh, to, to organizations in the community. It's all worthless if it's not based in faith. Now, the centurion's estimation of himself is quite different than that of the elders. Which brings us to the third point. Notice his realism. His realism in verse 6 Then Jesus went with them. So Jesus goes along with these elders to the man's house. Jesus is on his way. It's probably not that far. Capernaum is not exactly New York City. It's a little little town. And when he was now not far from the house, so he's getting close to the house, maybe within, you know, he can see the house, looking down the road where the centurion's house is. The centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not yourself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto you, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. That's amazing realism. For us to have a right relationship with God, we've got to be realistic. We've got to have a right view of two things, okay? two realities of ourselves and of God. 
The great reformer Calvin says that is what all true wisdom consists of, is, is a right knowledge of ourselves and of God. We've got to see who we really are and see who God really is. You know, sometimes we portray faith as a blind leap into the dark. People, you know, there's little plaques in Hobby Lobby, like, when you can't see, trust God, and it's sort of like you're going to just step out blindly without any evidence. It's sort of, we get the idea sometimes that there's reality that we can see and touch, and then there's faith, which is fantasy land. It's like Middle Earth, right? It's like Narnia. It doesn't exist. And so we have, you know, reason for real life and then faith for everything else. I would submit to you that faith is the doorway to reality. See, what is reality? Reality is what is. I guess here's what is. God created the universe. It's his world, and we're only going to understand his world when we understand it in relation to him. Guess what? We can't see God. We, we accept the existence of God on the basis of faith, and of course there's evidence all around us in the creation. But faith is not set in, in opposition to here's reality, and then here's faith. No, 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 no not at all. Faith is not a, just sort of a, a candle for those who are scared of the dark. A crutch for those who can't hobble through life on their own. No, faith is reality. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11 and verse 1. Faith has a clear-eyed view into reality, as into who we really are and into who God really is. So the centurion comes along and he intercepts Jesus on the way to his house. And he says, I am not worthy. Notice what he says in verse 7. He sent friends to Jesus. So he's already sent, sent the elders, his other friends who are with him. And he says, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. We see his view of Jesus and his view of himself in that statement. He calls Jesus Lord, kurios, which may, may just mean a sir, a title of, of respect, but I think it means something more. Luke has already primed us to think Lord means something more than just, hey, I have re- respect towards you. Lord is this title of deity. This is a title of of reverence. Now, I don't know that the centurion fully understood in this moment that Jesus is very God of very God, God in the flesh. But he is recognizing Jesus is far greater than I am. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the master. Jesus is the boss. Calls him Lord. And he says, trouble not yourself. That word trouble has the idea of rend or tear apart. It literally has this idea of skinning, right? Now, he's not saying don't skin yourself, but that, that's sort of the sense, don't cause trouble or annoyance or, or, or further harassment to yourself by coming on my part. This is an intrusion into your life. Now, that's not just empty sort of false pride. I think this man genuinely believes, I don't deserve this, this Messiah, this rabbi to be in my house. He says, Jesus, a man of your stature, need not trouble himself with the minor issues of my life. Even a life and death issue, he says, Jesus, you're far greater than that. I have no business with you coming under my roof. Now, here's the amazing irony of this story. The elders say, come, he's worthy of your help. Notice what he says about himself. I am not worthy. I'm not worthy, verse 6, that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. He's saying, I didn't even think I deserved to come. To you, Jesus, how much more am I unworthy of you coming to where I'm at? This shows an amazing, realistic. This is not a false humility, he's just beating himself up, pretending to be humble. This is a real, honest assessment of his own soul. He recognized his good deeds, though they were admired by men, did not commend him to God or make him deserving of Jesus' favor. That is an essential aspect of genuine faith, is recognizing, I got nothing to give to God and make him help me, to deserve his favor. Here's what's amazing. The closer Jesus got to the man's house, the greater the gap was between them. Because the man realized the closer Jesus got, that Jesus was far greater than he ever imagined, far more glorious than he ever conceived, and that he was far more unworthy than he ever thought was possible. He saw himself as he really was, as unworthy and as undeserving. Here's my question. Do you truly see yourself before God as unworthy, as undeserving? you have that entitlement mentality, or do you see yourself as, I don't deserve anything from Jesus? Do you see in your own heart a cesspool of sin? And by the way, I'm not just speaking to people who are not Christians, like, man, if there's someone here who's a real bad criminal. I mean, each one of us. Do you have a suspicion of your own heart, of your own motives? 
Do you have a, a readiness to examine your own heart? Before we partake of the, the Lord's Supper in a few minutes, right? We're going to take time to examine our hearts. Do you really examine your heart expecting to find sin? Or you're like, oh, yep, yep, everything looks great. It's awesome. My heart is pure. Or do you recognize your heart has bent away from God? He's got this realistic view of Jesus. He's got this realistic view where he says, just say the word and my servant shall be healed, verse 7. Okay, you called him Lord earlier, verse 7, but just say in a word and my servant shall be healed. This is amazing. Just speak. You don't even have to come under my roof and my servant must be healed. He actually uses the imperative. He says, my servant must, like by virtue of a command, like be healed. It's a definite thing. Not say the word and it might happen, but there's confidence here in Jesus' power and his ability. Verse 8. For I am also a man set under authority, having, having under me soldiers, and I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. What's he saying here in verse 8? He's saying, Jesus, I understand how authority works. Right? I got generals and, and people who are above me, and the emperor ultimately. So I'm kind of in the middle of the, of the pack author, in authority, how authority works. If someone gives me an order, they say, Go to Capernaum. Well, I go to Capernaum. I also have soldiers unto me. If I say to one of the privates, hey, go over to, to Cana, well, he goes. So I just, I just say a word. Here's how authority works. Authority works by someone with authority using words. That's the comparison. He says, Jesus, just as I can say words as someone in authority, you can say words and stuff happens. So I can say, hey, you guys go over there, and they go. So Jesus, just say the word, and my servant will be healed. He is affirming not only the power of Jesus, but the authority of Jesus. He says, Jesus, like me, you are doing the will of your Father. You're under authority. And like me, you have authority under you, except your authority is infinitely greater than mine. You can, from a distance, without even coming under the roof of my house, say a word, and my servant is healed. He's showing an amazing knowledge, by the way, of the Old Testament here. Psalm 107, verse 20 says about Yahweh, he sent his word and healed them. Right, just speaks. He doesn't have to come. He doesn't do any hocus-pocus. He doesn't have to bring any magical potions along. From a distance, he can heal. He has all authority. By the way, what a great way to pray. If you know something about the nature of God, he sent the word and healed. He doesn't have to come present in his presence to do it. That's what he's saying in verse 8. Jesus, you don't have to come. You can just speak, and it will happen. Who do you see Jesus as? Who do you see God as this morning? How do you view him? My question, Kay, do you have a realistic view of yourself? But here's a bigger question. Do you have a realistic view of God? How do I know what God's like? Maybe I just sort of imagine him to be a certain way, or I kind of have my ideas, or I just sort of pull together from here and there to come up with a, uh, an idea. God has revealed himself to us in Scripture. What is God like? God is a God whose brightness is so great, it darkens the stars. His strength is so awesome, it melts the mountains. By the way, this is what Job teaches us. His wrath shakes the earth. His purity is so great that even the brightest stars are as impure as a sewer in comparison to him. Even the holiest angels, by comparison to the holiness of God, are criminals in comparison. His powerful word creates galaxies. It upholds the solar system. It glues together the atoms. It sustains all life. Under his authority is all life and death, all politics and power, all sickness, all health. He rules over all things, good and evil, and everything in between. There's not a bird that falls from the sky without him knowing it. He knows the hairs on your head. We're talking about a God whose sovereignty, whose glory, whose majesty, whose might is terrifyingly great. And before whom one day every one of us will stand. Well, that sounds real. I don't like that view of God. That is what he is, how he has revealed himself. And who are you? Who am I to say God is other than what he has told us? He is what he has revealed himself to be. And he, that is reality. Seeing God for who he really is, that's clear-eyed reality. That's rubbing the, the soot out of your eyes and looking clearly for the first time. God's word, the Bible, are like glasses that you put on. You've got bad eyesight, you put glasses on. To be like, oh, wow, that, I, I didn't see that in front of me. You put God's word on, and they're like spectacles. They're like glasses that give us a clear vision at reality, who we are, who God is. And the centurion understood both. Do you have a realistic view? Do, do you see reality yourself? Unworthy. God, glorious. Brings us now to the final 
scene here, and it's the centurion's reliance. I'm using reliance as a synonym for faith. So what is faith? Faith is not just as nebulous, I hope something's going to happen. Faith is reliance that is confident. If you want confident reliance as a, as a working definition, it's not just a hopeful trust like, you know, you do those trust exercises where you fall back and your friend then catches you at the last minute, like, ha-ha, I made you, made you second-guess yourself on that. No, faith is this, this reliance on Jesus that is totally confident in his power and in his ability and in his willingness. It's not a, well, I hope one day I'm going to... If I were to ask you this question, if you were to die today... Stand before God. Do you have assurance that your sins would be forgiven and you'd be welcomed into God's presence? Do you know for sure that he would be saying, yeah, come on in? Or are you sitting here today thinking, well, I don't know, it's hopeful. Listen, faith is not just a, a wish or, or, or a nebulous desire that maybe God will perhaps in his niceness let me into heaven. Faith is confidence that my sins have been taken care of by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that my life is bound to his, and he rose from the dead to secure eternal life. It's confidence that this is true, and I know it is true for me, because the Holy Spirit of God dwells in my heart, and he has transformed me, and he confirms this day in and day out through a love relationship with the Father. Do you have that assurance? Are you 100% sure? You can't separate faith from assurance. It's not like believing in Jesus is one thing, and then assurance of salvation is another. Assurance is part and parcel of saving faith. Now, that doesn't mean we don't ever doubt. Listen, Christians, we do have questions. We do go through times where we doubt, but our doubt always falls back into faith and reliance on the promises of God and the person of Jesus Christ. Genuine faith continues. It perseveres. He's got faith. So notice verse 9. Jesus heard, heard, heard these things. Okay, When Jesus heard these things, namely, Jesus to say the word because you have such awesome authority, he marveled at him. And he turned him about and said unto the people. So notice the long runway for this statement, right? It's not just, here's a quick statement, but Luke is setting this up as Jesus stops, Jesus marvels, Jesus turns, and Jesus says to the people following him, and by the way, we're, we're following Jesus in this long line of saints uh, through the centuries. He says to us, I say unto you, I have, not, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. He says, this is real faith. This humility, this dependence, this reliance. See, this faith, this, this reliance the centurion had, it elicited Jesus' praise. It says Jesus marveled. Thaumadzo means to be extraordinarily impressed. It says, well, it says Jesus was marveled, marveled at this man's faith. Throughout the Gospels, people marvel at Jesus. Jesus heals, and they're just like, wow, that's amazing. There's only two places where Jesus is said to marvel at people. One of them is in Mark 6 and verse 6. He comes to his hometown and he does, he, it says he can do no mighty works there because they did not believe and he marveled at their unbelief. So the people who knew Jesus best believed him least and Jesus is like, what is wrong with you? He's just blown away with their lack of faith. Here he marvels at the opposite. Here's a guy who didn't have any of the privileges, any of the opportunities of the people who grew up in, where Jesus grew up in his hometown and he has greater faith than those who had the Old Testament, than those who had God's word, than those who knew the promises. And he marvels at the faith of this unlikely convert. This is amazing faith from an unlikely individual. And Jesus is amazed at it. I think all too often we're like the people in Jesus' hometown. You grew up in church. You live in the Bible Belt. You have six Bibles at home collecting dust. You have apps on your phone. You have radio stations that your, your radio's t dialed to. And yet you deep down don't really trust Jesus. You're still trusting your own works. It'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for you. Jesus' words, not mine. Scary thought. Here Jesus says, I have not seen faith, so great faith, no, not in Israel. Israel, where he should have found faith, where he should have been welcomed, he came unto his own, his own received him not. But here's a Gentile, an outsider, someone who doesn't know the covenant, someone who doesn't have the law, someone who didn't know about the Messiah coming, who has greater faith. See, Luke's point, one of Luke's points here, and this leads into the book of Acts, his second volume, is that God welcomes the Gentiles. You don't have to become Jewish in order to be brought into God's presence. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter the sin that you've committed. Turn to Jesus and he will receive you. He is rich in mercy to all who turn to him. The previous chapter, the Jewish people tried to touch Jesus, thinking, if we superstitiously touch him, we'll be healed. Here's someone who realistically trusted Jesus. Wow, that's a greater faith. 
amazing. You see, while the Jews, this is what one commentator said, while the Jews point to the good works of the centurion, Jesus commends the faith which lies behind them as the thing that ultimately matters. It's faith, not our works. The fact that Jesus says, notice this, I have not found so great faith. Okay, you find stuff when you're looking for it. Jesus is looking for genuine faith. Jesus was and is looking for this kind of humble, dependent, and reliant faith and is ready, immediately will forgive anyone who comes to him with this kind of faith. Here's the, here's the awesome reality of what God does. What he seeks, he creates. It's not like I'm, like, I'm going to work up my own faith just by really hard. Well, that's now a work. No, this faith is something that he works in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, so he gets all the glory. The centurion believed that Jesus could and would heal with just a word, not a magical touch, not a mystical presence, just a word. That's amazing faith, the amazing faith of an unlikely convert. The door is open to any, to all. And that's such an important point in the New Testament, that the gospel goes out to the nations, that the church of Jesus Christ is made up of all who repent and believe and trust in Jesus Christ. It's not divided on national lines. That's why we send missionaries to the far corners of the earth, because God is, is offering the gospel to all and to any who will receive it. Verse 10 now. Almost as sort of a footnote now, like, wow, great faith. That's the point of the story, verse 9, verse 10, just so we know how the story ends. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. So they, the guys who have come out from, you know, down the street to intercept Jesus, Jesus is probably just like a block away, they turn around, they take the two, three-minute stroll back to the house, and when they come back, the servant who was on death's doorsteps just minutes before is completely and totally healed. Not just, well, he turned a corner and three weeks later he's better. Completely and totally healed. That word that that is translated here, whole, uh, hugaino, means referring to the state of being healthy, of being well. To be in good physical health, to be healthy. Like completely, totally healed. The sickness completely gone. Okay, that's a miracle, right? This is not Jesus just kind of being at the right place at the right time. He has all power. He can do miracles. He said, I don't believe that. Listen, if there is a God... Let's start here. If there is a universe, then there's got to be a creator. And if there's a creator, he has power and can do miracles, right? That makes sense. That's logical to think that. If there's a universe, there's a creator. If there's a creator, he can do miracles. We can't just look at it and say, well, miracles can't happen, therefore they don't happen in the Bible. Circular reasoning. That doesn't make any sense. But if there's God and he's involved in his creation, then miracles should not be something that surprises us. He doesn't do them like every five seconds but he unleashes his divine power. This faith that the centurion had, it elicited Jesus' praise, and then it unleashes Jesus' power. You know, the greatest need we have is to be forgiven. The miracle of this story is not that the servant was healed. The miracle of the story is that a Gentile centurion believed in Jesus. For anyone to believe in Jesus is a miracle. Anyone to come to faith in Jesus is a miracle. See, I started out the sermon talking about unlikely converts. And there's some people who are like, oh man, really unlikely for this, this person over here. Here's the reality. Anyone who bows the knee to Jesus is an unlikely convert. None of us naturally are inclined to be like, yeah, I love Jesus. I'm going to be humble and I'm going to see my own sin as disgusting. No, we love our sin. That's why we do it, right? We wouldn't do it if we didn't like it. Our hearts are bent away from God. We're rebels. We're lawbreakers. And yet God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son to die on the cross, to take the place for unlikely converts, for rebels, for those who want nothing to do with God. That's you and me. For those who would self-righteously establish their own religion of trying to earn their way to God through human works. He dies on the cross for people like us. Taking our place, bearing the wrath of of the God we described a few moments ago who's so infinite and awesome. And he's buried, and he rises again three days later. Again, if God, then miracles are possible. Jesus rises from the dead, confirming that his death was enough, confirming that he's God's son. He rises to the right hand of the Father, and he gives forgiveness to anyone who will repent of their sins and rely totally on him. I've got a question for you. If you were to die today, do you know for sure that you would be right with God, welcomed into his presence? If not, here's my plea to you. Turn to Jesus Christ today. As you're leaving, if your heart's been stirred and convicted, don't just walk out of here being like, well, I'm just going to take a chance with my eternity. That is so, let me forgive the word, dumb. To take a chance with you, be like, well, I'm just going to take a chance with my eternity. We don't know when we're going to step off into eternity. 
Turn to Jesus Christ today. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you might be sitting there smugly being like, well, I have at one time seen my unworthiness, and so now I'm good with God. Look, I'm better than all those people who have. We're always unworthy, undeserving servants. What would this mean for you, Christian? If you recognize, if you truly recognize the reality of who God is, who you are, this should breed several things in your heart. One of them is humility. Wow, I can't believe that the God of eternity would be concerned with the likes of me. Not only that he would forgive me, but he would bless me so richly. Secondly, it should create gratitude in your heart. Do you thank God? Not just for all the things he gives you, but for the forgiveness he has granted you. Is is there an attitude of gratitude, action of giving thanks to God in your life? By the way, that's one of the the aspects of going to the Lord's table. Uh, Some traditions call it the Eucharist, which means thanksgiving. We're coming with a thankful heart for all that Jesus has done. Here's another action it should bring about in our hearts, Christian, is genuine confession. So if I recognize I'm unworthy, God's worthy, I'm not. I don't have to pretend that everything's okay in my life, right? I don't have to sit here and be like, well, let me just sort of cover my sin and put on this exterior of being holier than thou. I can come honestly in confession of my brokenness, of my sin, of my rebellion, of my failures. Because guess what? As Christians, there's still sin, brokenness, failure, and rebellion in my heart that I'm, I'm dealing with and growing and confessing and forsaking. It should also produce this graciousness of interaction with other people. Most of the times we get short with other people because we think deep down we're better than them. I can't believe they did that to me. I was going to get angry because I'm owed better in life. What if I realize that I deserve eternity in hell and anything short of that is better than what I deserve? What would that do? What what would that mentality do in your interactions in your marriage or in your home or in your workplace or with people who cut you off on the road? This is better than what I deserve. And finally, it should produce joy. For you as a Christian, it should produce joy that God would... I'm sure there was tremendous joy in that house that day that Jesus would... Consider such an individual. Amazing faith of an unlikely convert. Are you, are you an unlikely convert? Have you come to faith in Jesus, and are you living like that? Father, we praise you for this amazing account and for this amazing exposition of what genuine faith looks like.